If I'm not the problem, then there is no solution. Huh? How does this make any sense for my recovery? Welcome to episode 347 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lynn, Susan, Nancy, Roberta, Caitlin, and Colin. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Lynn, Susan, Nancy, Roberta, Caitlin, and Colin, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we'd like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Joining me today is our old friend, Eric. Welcome, Eric. <laughs> I'm not that old. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a little while since we it, it has been, yes. The so, yeah, last one we did, this is the other side of the coin. The, uh, right. The last one. Yeah, we uh, talked uh, about it's not yeah. your fault. It's not your uh, fault. Yeah, a couple months ago, probably. Yeah, so this one occurred to me as kind of the opposite of that. Kind of, I am the problem. My thinking is the problem. Anyway, greetings from Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah, you wanted to open with a reading. This is from How Eleanor Works, page 20, chapter 4, Seeking Solutions for Ourselves. Clearly, a loved one's sobriety does not solve all our problems, nor does physical separation or even death. Even those of us who have not been involved with any alcoholics for many years find that we continue to be affected by the family disease. In short, the effects of alcoholism, obsession, anxiety, anger, denial, and feelings of guilt tend to persist until we seek recovery for ourselves. The drama of other people's problems can be very distracting, especially when those people are alcoholics. But in Alan, we discover that the problem does not lie solely with another person. The problem is also within us. The behavior of an alcoholic, friend, spouse, child, sibling, employer, or parent may have led us to Alan, but we soon realize that our own thinking has become distorted. Alan helps us to stop wasting time trying to change the things over which we have no control and to put our efforts to work where we do have some power over our own lives. That kind of says a lot, huh? It does. The whole notion of this thing is really our whole program. Urge to change the things I can, and what I can change is me. That's about it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. When I came into recovery, I was forced to recognize where I was contributing. But there's good news in this saying because when I can identify my part of the problem, then I can actually do something there. As long as I'm trying to change somebody else because they're the problem, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to find unmanageability and and all kinds of resentments and goodness knows what else. You had a little story about yeah. a guy in rehab. Yeah, I heard this. I don't know if it was an AA speaker. I think it was a guest speaker. Telling a story, I don't know if it was his story or a story he had heard, but it was about a guy who ended up 
in a rehab. And after detoxing, whatever they do for a few days, five days, seven days, he just kind of came to in the morning and he found himself in this tiny little white room on this tiny little white bed. He gets up and he looks at this tiny little lamp and this tiny little dresser. He says, what the heck happened? How did I end up here? He was completely blacked out, I guess, during that week uh, or prior and just didn't even really know where he was. But he gradually made his way over to the dresser, and above it was a tiny little mirror, like the size of a sheet of paper. And he's just staring at himself, and he gets closer and closer until his nose is almost up against the glass. And really small letters down in the right corner says, you're looking at the problem. It's a poignant and funny kind of story, but I think it also applies to us in our program. If I'm not the problem, there is no solution. It's a really kind of difficult notion. When I first heard it, I rejected it. I'm not the problem. She's the problem. Her drinking is the problem. Everyone else is the problem. That's blame. And I got nowhere with that. So that's where the idea for this came from. There's a lot of different versions of this around. And there's one apparently from Eldridge Cleaver. He said, there is no more neutrality in the world. You either have to be part of the solution or you're going to be part of the problem. I think... I can certainly see how that applied in my life pre-Alanon, pre-recovery, because I was definitely not finding any solution, but I was surely contributing to the problem in my family by the way in which I was reacting to the act of alcoholism of my loved one. I'm sure I've said it many times on this podcast that when I first heard about Al-Anon from somebody at a treatment center where my loved one was in attendance at an outpatient program, they said, hey, those of you who are friends and family members of the people who are here might find some value in attending this program, Al-Anon. And my first thought was, I don't need a 12-step program. I don't need any sort of a program. She's the one with the problem. She needs to fix it. And she tried many times to deal with her problem. To some extent, her failures in dealing with it herself over time led to me contributing more to the problem until I eventually heard what some of us call the three C's that I didn't cause it. I can't cure it and I can't control it. That brought me to realize that I couldn't fix her problem. And that was a relief. But then my life is not good. And that brought me to the point of saying, maybe going to this Al-Anon thing might help. So I don't think I was really ready to say, I need recovery, but I was ready to say, I need help. And that was enough to get me to a meeting. How were you part of the problem back in the day? It was a huge part of the problem. I really did think I could take the medicine and cure her. 
I went yeah. to a lot of AA meetings thinking she'll certainly follow me. They'll coat tell me or I'll learn what they're doing and go back and tell her and she'll do it. I mean, shit, Lord, this ridiculous thing. Yeah. I wrote this down. I heard this in the early bird meeting this every morning a while back. Figure it out is not a slogan. And I was trying to figure her out, figure out what other people, why they did what they did. Why can't she see the damage that's being done? So uh, I'll figure it out for her. Uh, it just it just exacerbated everything. This is, it doesn't work for me anymore. I've learned, and I say this uh, over and over, the only way I can push anyone is away from me. And I was pushing her, go to meetings, come drink. And encourage, when we say we encourage uh, and understand our alcohol, I, I really thought I had to be a cheerleader. That's how I encourage. Don't drink. Go to meetings. Don't drink. <laughs> yeah, there's encouragement. Don't drink. Go to meetings. And pom-poms. It was just ridiculous. And it just made things worse. She was angry. I was blaming. It just, oh, toxic. It was a toxic dance, and I was a willing participant. Yeah, so the solution is for me to change my thinking. I am the only person that can do that. Yeah. Again, I'm thinking about the beginning problem that I was trying to fix. My wife drank too much. Seems like a simple statement of a problem. She drinks too much. And there was some other stuff going on there, too. There was depression and occasional suicidal thoughts. I'm not sure they ever got beyond I don't want to live to I'm going to do something about it, but that scared the heck out of me. I'm like, how do I fix this? I remember fairly early when I was in program that this came up. I called my sponsor and said, so she's saying she doesn't want to live. What do I do? And my sponsor said, has she expressed a plan? Does she have the means I thought about it, and I said, I don't think so. And she said, then in that case, just be there. But if she expresses a plan, if she acquires some means, then it might be time for the psych ward. So there was a problem that I really didn't know how to fix, but I thought that if there was a possibility of that happening, that I really needed to do something. I wasn't sure what. And luckily I had a, I won't say older, but longer in the program, wiser person that I could turn to. So I was trying to fix all kinds of problems and most of them weren't mine, which is to say they weren't something that I could all by myself do something about because fixing the drinking required the active and willing cooperation of the drinker. There were times when I tried to withhold alcohol, when, when we were in a situation where that was possible. In most places, it's not possible because alcohol is so readily available just about anywhere. But there were times when I tried to withhold it, and I will say that the outcome was never pleasant. How did trying to fix someone else's problem make me feel? It made me feel frustrated and angry and resentful and probably lots of other negative miserable. emotions. Yeah. Miserable, miserable is a wonderful word for how I feel. Miserable. Miserable is the word that jumps out at me. Mm -hmm. I was living in misery. 
trying to solve someone else's problem. That was actually my problem. That was my problem. I was just, I was miserable because I couldn't do it. And no one can. The best we can hope for is be a good example. This uh, next reading I wanted to jump into. Yeah. Yeah. Tradition five is, it's, it's buried in um, page 113 of how Alan works soft cover. We learned that no one else is responsible for solving our problems or making us happy. This is our responsibility. The point is not what others can do to improve. We take the 12 steps because we want to have rich, full, satisfying lives, and no one else can give that to us. Taking the steps is an act of self-love. Everyone deserves love, right? Everyone deserves love, even those that have treated us badly. Holding on to blame and resentment hurts us far more than it hurts anyone else. Harboring ill feelings towards the alcoholics in our lives, or even no longer in our lives, I added that, keeps us tied to an ongoing attitude of bitterness that only makes us feel miserable. There it is. And victimized also. Changed attitudes aid recovery. My changed attitudes, I wrote. We can strive to understand the alcoholics, recognizing that they suffer from a disease that affects their thoughts and actions. Like any other disease, they're doing the best with what they have and they deserve our compassion and respect. What a notion. You know, I understand this now. I didn't at all when I came in. So we asked for contributions from listeners, and mm. we got a number of uh. them. <laughs> uh, I want to start with a voicemail from Mary Lou. Hi, Spencer. This is Mary Lou. When I received your email, I had to read those two statements in your message a couple of times. And now I'm pretty sure that both of them are true. If I'm not the problem, there's no solution. If I am the problem, there's no solution. It pains me to come down on the side that there's no solution because solutions are exactly what everyone, including me, was looking for when they came to Al-Anon. Maybe it's not so much that I believe that there's no solution. It's Maybe it's that it's there's no simple solution or maybe it's an ongoing solution. I can definitely see my pre-programmed self as a kind of whirling dervish of activity trying to fix everyone else's problems. As we know, alcoholics have quite a few problems, and many of them happen at odd or inconvenient times, holidays, weekends, in the middle of the night, DUIs, loss of jobs, homes, families, all drama all the time. Pre-program, I was convinced that it was my role to solve all of these issues. Looking back, I'm convinced that I spent so much of my time trying to fix other people's problems before I got into Al-Anon. It was practically a second full-time job. As it turns out, focusing on other people was a perfect way to never, ever have to deal with my own problems. Don't get me wrong, this strategy not only kept me very busy, it also helped me to develop some great skills, which is why when I first came in, I was really shocked to hear that my very best skill, or what I thought was my very best skill, fixing, managing, and controlling was not recommended. In fact, it was sometimes described as a character defect. I think it was just about my only tool. I can't say that all of this activity that I was engaged in made me happy, and I'm hard-pressed to say that it was even effective, or maybe it was just effective until the day that it wasn't, and it hasn't been ever since then. One of the questions you asked was, what did you hear when you came to Al-Anon that encouraged you to feel different, to think differently? When I came into Al-Anon, I was utterly convinced that my main problem was my family member. I had never asked myself the question, which of the problems I was so focused on were actually mine. When I began going to meetings, I heard many suggestions about program tools. If I'm being honest, there wasn't a single tool that I ever heard about that I was actually interested in using. 
I didn't like that I was the one who had to go to meetings. I didn't like the slogans. I didn't agree that I should have to create a gratitude list or do daily readings. When I listened to the 12 steps and traditions being read at meetings, I sorted through them and mostly thought, no way am I ever doing that one, especially the one about making amends to anyone that I had a resentment against. If I'm being honest, I only kept coming back because I felt a tiny bit, maybe 10% better in meetings than I did outside of meetings. Eventually, a couple things happened. I began to realize that I had some things that I needed to resolve, and not getting them done had little to do with someone else's alcoholism. Just as an example, I had some pending financial issues that really needed to be cleaned up, but I was really having a very difficult time getting up the energy to deal with them. I began to see my my own role in the disease of alcoholism in my life. Pre-program, I would have only described my role in alcoholism in terms of being a victim. However, in what I now know was one of my first spiritual awakenings, I heard someone describing piling on or kicking the alcoholic when they were down. And I thought, oh, I've done that. At the time, I definitely felt justified. But when I started to think about it more fully, I, I had to change my mind. It really became embarrassing to think about the things that I had done. I realized if someone else had another disease, say cancer, I really couldn't justify engaging in that kind of behavior. And I really couldn't blame an alcoholic for what I had done. No one made me do that. That was all me. Ugh, like try sitting with that. My sponsor showed me that I had an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for everyone except for myself. And in response, I've decided that I really don't need to give my advice to other people, only to those people who have requested it. In fact, I often ask myself if someone has actually asked for my advice. And then sometimes when I'm talking with other people, I ask them, do you want to just vent or are you actually interested in what I have to say? I really recently heard one of my favorite authors describe a term for this practice. It's called ultra-crepidarianism. This describes the habit of giving opinions and advice outside of matters of one's own knowledge or competence. I have to say, I didn't think of myself, of this advice that I was giving to people pre-program as being outside of my area of competence. That term refers to, there's a, a Latin saying that roughly translates as, let the shoemaker venture no farther than his shoes. I really thought I knew everything about everyone's shoes everywhere, and now I don't think that. Al-Anon has helped to give me the humility to recognize my own limitations. I also learned that when I am feeling the need to help others or give advice, the person who is probably in most need of help in that moment is me. I used to interpret that urge as my need to help others. Now I can think to myself, you're the one who's in need of soothing. What might actually help you? What does the statement that you asked us to respond to mean to me now? How does that affect my behavior? Let me give you an example. My son is in school, which due to COVID is all online. Contrary to my predictions about his ability to do online schooling, he's actually doing great. One of the reasons I think he's doing great is because I think his anxiety is lessened online. I don't think I really fully appreciated how anxious it made him to actually go to class. That's really given me a lot of compassion uh, for him. School was not a major source of anxiety for me as it is for him. I can easily start to engage in all kinds of predictions about his upcoming transfer from his community college to a four-year school. I myself have a lot of um, schooling, but I can also recognize now that none of this was under the current conditions. One day when I was sitting with this, it came to me that it's possible, even likely, that the rest of his academic career is going to be online. I have no idea what that looks like. 
which in turn made me think, maybe it's time for me to turn in my crystal ball. I spent so much time predicting the future and then working backwards from that. Don't get me wrong, I still want to help him with whatever issues, primarily administrative issues, that he still needs help with. Being an Al-Anon has enabled me to let go of him and let him figure it out. I have to recognize that he won't do it the same way that I might have done. And if he gets it done, so what if he did it another way? I personally don't like people backseat driving me. So after being an Al-Anon, I can stand back and take my hands off the wheel and let him go. It's liberating to see him as his own person. And seeing myself uh, as his mother and not his keeper contributes to fewer feelings of unmanageability and more serenity. So that's what I have to say about your request. So thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Mary Lou. I actually, as we were going, I highlighted some things that jumped out at me. I'll start with one of them that I had this whoa moment when I heard it. When I am feeling the need to help others or give advice, the person who is probably in most need of help in that moment is me. Okay, let's stop for a minute and think about that. What is it in me that is driving me to want to tell you how to live your life? What's coming up for me? What jumped out at you here? Oh, God. All drama all the time. I think that could have been a, a, a weekly game show. All drama all the time, 24-7. Tune in. Walk into the house. It was all drama all the time. I wrote down FMC, Fixing, Managing, Controlling. It might be a new acronym, Fixing, Managing, Controlling. And she said, in fact, it was sometimes described as a character defect. I do believe that. My trying to fix, manage, and control is a character defect. I wrote at the bottom of the page, when I'm talking, for instance, with my daughter, uh, who's now 23, and she's been through a lot, I, I really have, I think, honed the art of listening, and it's really hard to just listen and uh, wait. And then when she finishes, I stop. I don't jump in with, do this, do that. I say, would you like my thoughts? Would you like to know what I did? And so, I don't know, there's so much in that to share from her. I could go on, but wow, thanks, Mary Lou. That was terrific. A couple other things that I, I highlighted here. I spent so much time predicting the future and then working backwards from that. Maybe it's time for me to turn in my crystal ball. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. I knew exactly where this thing was going, and mm. and it was not good, and in between was going to be a lot more misery. And misery. None of that happened. <laughs> None of that happened. I can't know what the future holds for me, let alone for somebody else. And I love this, which she concluded with, seeing myself as his mother and not his keeper. Yeah, it's good. Contributes to fewer feelings of unmanageability and more serenity. People have asked me, people who are in that place, I think, to some extent, how do you... Do this thing where you're living with somebody who's still killing themselves with their drinking or drugging, and you love them, and and you see this going on. How do you live there? I think that she expresses here that transition that happened when I was able to see myself as a companion, a friend, a lover, but not in the physical sense necessarily, rather than as a, a keeper, a caretaker, then I was able to 
to let her find her path, which did lead. I heard her saying to somebody recently, she said, you know, I finally realized that if I wanted to stay sober at home, I had to get sober at home. So much of her journey was reaching out to other people to fix her, Mm. whether it was going into the hospital for detox or going into a residential treatment program. She finally said, I need to get sober at home, not get sober in a hospital, not get sober in a residence, but get sober at home. And I think that just speaks again to this thing. I have to figure out where I'm part of the problem, and then I can address that. She used that word liberating before that last sentence you read about fewer, she gets fewer feelings of unmanageability and more serenity. It's liberating. And that reminded me of the episode we did on freedom. And I wondered if that tied in here somewhere. Mm. Might be worth a footnote. It's freeing. It's liberating to let it go, to let go and focus on ourselves. So Roberta's fear. Yeah. If I'm not the problem, there is no solution. Wow. Not sure why this statement gives me so much uneasiness. This is my first time I have ever heard this, and I'm seven and a half years new to the program. It does propose thought around what was my part or is my part. I know when I was living with active alcoholism, I contributed. That being said, I did not tie my loved one down and force him to drink. I did treat him poorly. I used to look for the bottles to prove I knew he wasn't sober. The rage I felt when I found it was awful. Alan taught me that changed attitudes can aid in perspective. Another episode. You all taught me to pause, to wait, to halt. Everyone's journey through Alan helped me to see my part and keep my side of the street clean. I learned to stay in my hula hoop. Today, I know happiness is an inside job for every member of my family. I can give tools or suggestions but I cannot force someone to actually do or use what I say. Today, my 14-year-old daughter is struggling not to self-harm. I know her dad and I can only give her direction and the help she needs. That does not mean she will take the advice of a professional. It also means she might end her life. I found acceptance around this and pray she finds life. No matter how dark right now, there is a light. Even in the darkest of times, the brightest stars shine. There is always hope. Thank you, Spencer and Eric, Roberta. Yeah, I think we both do have experience with a child who is struggling with life in some way or another. One of my kids ended up in professional care for a week because of that when they were in college. And man... Again, so hard and so wanting to fix. I've talked about this before here in the podcast. The the kid was in college like 1,500 miles away. Um, I had to fly there because the facility they were in wasn't going to let them out without somebody to receive them because they had been banned from campus because of their actions. I really wanted to fix it, but I had several years of Al-Anon at that point. I don't remember exactly how many I could do the math, but several. And I knew that my kid had to take the actions to address the issues that they had caused, that they had to do it. But there were things that I could do. And this is where the program really helped me to be a support rather than a help. 
and I put air quotes around the help, you can't see them, but they're there, to provide the things. And I remember one definition of enabling is doing for someone something that they can do for themselves. And in this case, I provided the things that my kid couldn't provide, like a place to live, you know, renting a hotel room and transportation because they didn't have a car, they didn't drive. And that sort of thing, while they dealt with all the consequences of their actions and and did get readmitted to school, but had to find a new place to live because of, again, consequences of their actions. The program helped me so much in understanding the difference between supporting and fixing there. Yeah. You you hit on three of our episodes we've done, enabling versus empowering, perspective and consequences. All seem to tie into that share. Yeah. So another voicemail we have from Maureen. Sure. Yeah. Let's listen to Maureen here. Hello, Spencer and Eric. This is Maureen calling. And I am um, wanted to comment on the idea of if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. When I first got the email asking for um, shares, I thought, boy, that's really a mind boggler. What does it mean? And for the last few days, I've been just letting it percolate and almost meditating on it. And it's just packed with wisdom. To me, it's all about the wisdom to know the difference. What is my responsibility? I was such an over-responsible person before Alan and I thought it was my business to get in everybody else's business and to help solve problems and to be there for everybody. And that's just not the way it works now. I, I feel so happy to know What's in my hula hoop is my problem. All I can really do about others is pray for them. And that's what I do now. The act of praying is something to do. And now I just don't get in the middle of everything. It's not my business. So I really appreciate this slogan. I've never heard it before. And like I say, I think it's just packed with wisdom. I really appreciate you sharing it and there's always something new to learn in recovery and Al-Anon and definitely on the recovery show. So thank you. Bye now. I totally agree. I did not hear this idea expressed in these exact words, I think, before you brought it to me last month, two months ago, whenever it was when we started talking about doing this topic. But I think it encapsulates stuff that I did learn the message appears in the program. It's a restatement in some way of the serenity prayer. Wisdom. For me, this when I first heard it, it was stunning. Come on. Yeah. But man, it has really come to mean so much to me. It's really my whole program revolves around that. I am my problem. Yeah. My thinking is my problem. My behavior is my problem. My reaction, my response are my responsibility. They are mine. I cannot pawn my behavior off on anything or anyone that happens to me. So, yeah. Great. Really good. It was my business to get into everybody else's business. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. That was me for sure. You know, the old saying we've heard many times, there's only two types of business, my business and none of my business. So I don't know how that ties in, but I think it does. <laughs> yeah. And Maureen said something about getting in the middle of everybody else's business, right? Yeah. You found a blog post titled, If I Am Not the Problem, Then There Is No Solution. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 347. 
Um, I think that, think that might be relevant. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> so I just want to read a couple paragraphs here. This tip requires a lot of concentration for all who hear it. It is one of the most difficult concepts I have ever learned in my life. The first time I heard it, I immediately began to feel defensive. I tried to think of all the reasons why it was wrong. I thought, that cannot be right. I am not the problem in every difficult situation in which I find myself, and I know that there are some problems that I have absolutely not brought upon myself. But over the years, I have come to see the power of this deep, unusual truth. I actually want to stop there because that is the core, I think, of where I might object to this. There are problems that I didn't make. But I have to find what I can do. And so the author of this blog goes on, you have a powerful influence that you bring to the table in every situation in which you find yourself. If there is something taking place in your life right now that you feel is not going well, then the question to ask is, what can I do about it? In other words, what role could you play in order to make things better? Until you realize that if you are not the problem, even a small part of it, then there can be no solution. This kind of thinking takes the matter of personal responsibility and turns it squarely around so you can look it right in the face. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, good stuff. We could go on reading this, but this just, I'll I mean, put a just, link. you can go read it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just finish the down at the bottom on a fourth, fifth paragraph. The longer I live, the more I see that the only person I have any power over on this entire planet is myself. I believe I should be a strong influence on others, but I cannot control anyone, nor do I want to. I simply want to control myself and influence others. And I wrote others and I wrote by example, by carrying the message and probably practicing it in all my affairs. Definitely. Good stuff. Definitely. We got some more listener shares here. We have one from Shell. Hi, Spencer. My name is Shell, and I received an email, and I know you're doing a show on if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. I just wanted to share that one of the things that really resonated with me when I first came to program was this phrase that the woman who became my sponsor shared in a meeting, which was getting right-sized with the world. I tend to lean on that that phrase a lot, or the, the idea of being right-sized. I think before program, I had a very skewed perspective on the scale of my reach, of my control, and of my place in other people's lives and business. Something about that simple idea of getting right-sized helps me to return to what I know to be my business and my side of the street and the reality that I cannot change anyone else's behavior. I'm not responsible for anyone else's behavior, no matter how much I love them, no matter how close they are to me. And the freedom and the liberation that came from that concept of being right-sized was beyond language, really. So I just had to share that one because it was such a gem in my early recovery and continues to be something that I return to pretty regularly, even as we speak today on Election Day 2020, a day that for four years I personally have been waiting for. And I sit here with this idea that I'm right-sized with this big question mark about what today will bring. I've done what I can. I've managed myself, and that's all I can do. 
sending love and serenity to all the fellows. Thank you so much for listening to my share. Bye-bye. And thanks, Shell. Right-sized with the world. And I was like, what does that mean? And then she goes on. She said, I had a very skewed perspective on the scale of my reach of my control and of my place in other people's lives and businesses. And yeah. And she talks about freedom and liberation also. Yeah. Freedom and perspective. Both episodes we've done are both in that chair. How important is it comes to mind? Really? How important is it that I get ahead of this guy in traffic and beat my horn? And I wrote, let go and let go, let go and let go. I just got to drop the rope sometimes. And we have another share from Deborah. Hi, Spencer. This is Deborah from Florida. I got your email to the group regarding the episode you and Eric are going to be doing on the statement, if I am not the problem, there is no solution. And I, oh, I'm really glad you guys are doing this one. That was such a confusing phrase when I first heard it in the rooms. It was more complicated than most of the words of wisdom I heard, it, especially if you consider the kind of mainstream don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. And it just sounded like it was backward. I misguidedly thought I had all the solutions for everyone. So clearly it was going to take a while for me to get it. First, I needed to understand and accept that I was part of the problem. And I needed to understand what role I had played. I had to replace my ego that told me that I was the only sane person and in charge of fixing all others. And I had to drop my victim mentality and all both of those things were just so hard for me. Once I understood it was all about me understanding what was my part. And it was then I could start working on correcting my part, my behavior, and then I could get down to doing something constructive on me, not on anyone else. Pre-Al-Anon, I believed I had the solutions to all of my son's alcohol-related crisis and problems. And he was just the latest in a long list of family and friends I had attempted to fix. I was in that, if they would just do what I told them to do, their lives would become manageable. So I believed, as the great manager of all people, places, and things, despite having failed to fix or change anyone at all, ever, they still believed it. So then in Al-Anon, as I progressed in my program and I was working my step four the first time around, my sponsor really helped me identify what was my part in the relationships that I was either trying to fix or I was resenting. And it was really hard work. Uh, my ego kept saying, it's not me, it's them. I still have to self-examine closely to accept where, when, and how I cause or contribute to a problem that involves others. Thanks to Al-Anon, it is a lot easier to see now, and I'm able to stop my adverse behavior more quickly, or sometimes not even do it at all, which is really wonderful. And our slogans really help remind me what is my problem and what is not my problem. Mind your own business. I love hands off, pays off. He has a higher power and it's not me. Stay in your own hula hoop. Live and let live. It does, it just some of our slogans just really speak to me and help me understand this phrase. Using the slogans absolutely helps guide me, helps me mind my own business, helps me to stay in, in working on me, not on others, and understanding what part I play. And, and one of the questions you asked in your email was, how is it liberating? It is just such a relief to know I am free of this self-imposed burden of others' problems. I can and do work 
on my own problems, my own defects of character. And surprisingly, I have serenity most days. And those I love live as they choose without interference from me, at least most of the time. <laughs> it is a progress, not perfection thing for me. But it this phrase is just so interesting to me. I didn't think I was the problem. And I've learned in this program, I was contributing to the problem. I was sometimes am the problem. And that's how I can get to solutions that work for me and have really nothing to do with anyone else, although I'm sure it is a great relief to my friends and family that I am now working on me and not on them. So thanks for uh, the topic and sending that out. I look forward to hearing uh, you and Eric on this topic and hearing all the others who will contribute. And have a great day. Hope you're surviving pandemic and your family as well. And take care. Talk soon. Bye. So what do you get from that, Eric? Yeah, I don't know. I scribbled all over this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be Mr. Fix-It anymore, I wrote down. Hands uh-huh. off, pays off, I wrote. Never heard that. Hands off, pays off. Never heard it. Uh, yeah, I've really heard that one from little. Deborah several times. I don't know where she picked it up. but ah, uh, Great. Yeah, resentment is in there. Episode 196, we did that one too. Liberating. This whole notion of if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. It's liberating. Yeah. It's so contrary at first. It's like, what? Huh? It actually is liberating to, to think of it deeply. Yeah. She has a couple of things here that I picked up on. How to replace my ego. It told me I was the only sane person. Yeah. yeah, been there. I had to drop my victim mentality. Isn't it weird how yeah. we're like, at the same time, we're like, I need to be in charge of this and I'm a victim? Yeah, how does that work? That's, Dichotomy. Yeah, that's the the phrase that I've heard some alcoholics say about themselves, that they're an egomaniac with a insecurity complex. Never heard that. Yeah, and I think this says the same thing. Like, my ego says I'm in charge of everything, but at the same time, I feel like I'm out of control, yeah. which makes me try sense. to control. This sentence really captures that to get me out of that cycle of I need to control, I can't control, so I need to control more. I I, I talked earlier a little bit about one of the solutions that I found early in the program. I think I said the word detachment. Detachment was so important for starting to let go of this feeling of needing to control, of needing to change, of feeling that her problems were my problems. But a couple of other solutions that we mentioned here, boundaries, Somebody who shared talked about the hula hoop concept that what I can control is the stuff that's inside the hula hoop around me, which is not very big. Understanding that boundary between me and the rest of the world, between me and other people helps me to see where I can actually have solutions. And then there's that really tough one of acceptance of this is the way things are. This idea that I'm looking out the window right now. And the sky is gray. It's raining. I don't want it to be gray and raining. I want it to be sunny and warm. And I can want that all I want. (laughs) But it's not going to change what is. And if I persist in the delusion that it's going to be sunny and warm, and I decide to go out for a walk in my shorts and t-shirt, I'm going to be pretty miserable. 
But if I accept that it's cold and gray and raining and I put on my raincoat, as I did this morning when I took the dog out for a walk, I can be perfectly comfortable and enjoy my walk. So that captures for me what I understand about acceptance, about not saying this is right, but saying this is now what, you know? I heard changing what if to even if Hmm. seems to just instead of what if that happens? What if this happens? What if she does that? What if even if seems like a really nice notion to accept the things we cannot change, even if I don't like it. Sure enough. enough. Yeah. So your friend Bruce sent us some thoughts. You want to share those with us? So, you want my thoughts about whether I think you are the problem? LOL. Oh, you want my thoughts about whether you think I am the problem? LOL. No, you want my thoughts about whether I believe I am my own problem? Yepper. (laughs) Sure, I am my own problem. Just thinking about how my best pre-recovery quote thinking got me here. And actually, it wasn't really thinking so much as reacting to the alcoholic in my life. Just trying to keep the chaos and confusion that came with living in active addiction environments that were so convoluted and confusing, devious and cunning and baffling, that those ideas just wore me down to a nub of living in the problem. My reactions to this unknown situation then became my problems. They weren't necessarily sane or rational. They might have been as grossly weird as the alcoholic at the time. They certainly weren't as loving and kind as I would have wished them to be. But those reactions became my way of not thinking, but of surviving. So what do I do today now that I no longer deal with active addiction in my life? I work the steps to remind myself of how powerless I am over other people, places, and things. I reach out to my sponsor and engage in dialogues only where I believe that the other person is capable of hearing what I'm saying. I read literature and attend meetings so I can hear how you think about the problems that living in addiction-filled environments manifest themselves And so I hear about the solutions to believing that my problems are no bigger or worse than anyone else's, just that they happen to my life, the same way they happen to yours. The details might have different names, but they are the same. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Such a a nice, concise description of how you went from, yeah, best pre-recovery thinking, right? Yeah, living in it to living in the problem versus living in the solution. And the solution is me. There we go. To a very big extent, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Last share here from Heather. When I first began attending my recovery program, I was focused almost completely on others, mainly my husband. In my mind, it was my job as a wife to take care of my husband, provide for his every need, support him in any way I could, keep him from having consequences of his actions, etc., Since I was only looking outward, the problems in our marriage were his fault, not mine. If only he'd dot dot dot, it would all be okay. His family and friends would tell me that I was the best thing that ever happened to him, and I agreed. What an amazing, sacrificing wife I was. Once I began working with a sponsor, she slowly began to question many of my self-appointed jobs in my relationship with my husband, and then my relationships with others. She would ask, Did he ask for your help? Did he ask you to do all that for him? Is he unable to do dot dot dot? 
Did she ask for your advice? Are you her counselor, mentor, spiritual leader? When the answer was always no, she would fire me. She'd remind me that I was never hired for that specific job, and since I took on the job anyway without being asked, she was taking it upon herself to fire me. Sometimes I fought being fired, and she'd joke that she was going to call security and remove me from the building. I was stubborn and argued a lot, but I had asked her to sponsor me, and luckily I did not fire her. I listened and gave up many of those jobs. Once I was fired from saving slash helping slash fixing everyone in my life, I had a lot of time on my hands, and I finally focused my time and energy on looking at what was going on inside me. I had never really looked inside, and I was shocked. I realized I was judgmental, self-righteous, critical, and dishonest. I had been so busy looking at others, I never saw those things. I would never have used those words to describe myself. I realized I, too, was sick. Not just my loved ones suffering from addiction. It was so freeing to see that I am the problem. I'm going to read that again. It was so freeing to see that I am the problem. And that because I am the problem, I actually can do something about it. I can talk to those my higher power has brought into my life. My sponsor, counselor, spiritual leaders, program friends. Attend meetings. Ask myself, what is my motive, etc. And though I can't change others, I have changed. I still often have the urge to help, give unsolicited advice, etc. But now I frequently stop first and ask myself why I want to do this and what my motive is. And this is often enough. My husband did not choose recovery or me. And marriage came to an end. But because I've continued to work on my recovery, many of my relationships have changed. I'm so grateful I am the problem. What a gift. Thank you for being part of my recovery, Spencer and the whole Recovery Show family. And I'm just going to add, and Eric, thank you. A grateful member of Al-Anon, S-Anon, and Naranon, Heather. Thank you, Heather, for writing. Thank you for expressing the solution in such clear, simple terms, getting fired from your self-appointed jobs. I hadn't thought about that, but that is, wow. What a sponsor. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great sponsor. You're fired. Okay. I'm going to have to use that with some of my sponsors, I think. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Saving slash helping slash fixing. I wrote slash slashing slash stabbing slash jabbing slash dodging. (laughs) This is a wow-a-non share. Okay. Thank you so much, Heather. That was cool. Yeah. Fun. I just want to close with a reminder from One Day at a Time. This is November 4th and One Day at a Time in Al-Anon. I can't change the weather, the traffic, and I cannot drive the car in front of me. No matter how much I want to, I can change my perspective, my outlook, and my attitude towards it. There is a solution I slash we all have the power to awaken within us the courage to change the things we can. And I have come to know that thing is me. I will let it begin with me. And actually, for full disclosure, that's actually all my words. The reading, that's not from the reading. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, there was- and I think you chose this Fix You by Coldplay. Okay. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but you do not want what you need. When you feel so tired, but you can't sleep. Stuck in reverse when the tears come streaming down your face because you lose something you can't replace. When you love something that goes to waste. What could it be worse? Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones. And I will try to fix you. And the repeated refrain, I will try to fix you. 
mm. I think is uh, yeah. listen to the song. Yeah, it it happens more than once. The lyrics here are describing somebody else's problem. All these things that happen to this other person, I will try to fix you. Huh. Yeah. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, how we experienced recovery recently, because it's been more than a week since I've recorded an episode. I did record one on Thanksgiving about gratitude, and uh, thank you to all the people who sent in your gratitudes. And I think I got a couple after the fact that we'll be um, sharing in in future episodes. Oh, man. I'm going to start with this morning. As I said, I was taking a walk with the dog, and I was listening to a podcast called Poetry Unbound. They're fairly short episodes, like 15 minutes. And in each episode, he reads a poem. He shares some thoughts about the poem that spoke to him, obviously, the person who's doing the reading. And then he reads the poem again. And and the guy who's doing it is himself a poet. And he pulls things out of these poems that I like, whoa, I never saw that. One of the things he said one day is, I believe you have to read a poem at least twice. Read it, let it sink in, and then read it again. The poem this morning is a litany of, for doing this, I forgive you. For doing that, I forgive you. I'm like, wow, like this person's, whoever they're forgiving is really messed up. They're doing all these things. And and he points out that this poem has to be somebody forgiving themselves. Because if you listen to something, some of them are about you know, dreams you had. And how do you know that about somebody else? But you sure as heck know it about yourself. And when I heard it that way, it just totally changed my perspective of what it was saying. But he goes on to talk about how important for our own well-being it is to be able to forgive ourselves. And I thought, wow, that is program. That is making amends to myself in step nine. But that is also step four, seeing all the things that I then come to forgive myself for, doing that inventory and finding all those things. So that one just really struck me. And actually, Heather talked about that too. She said, I had never really looked inside. I was realized I was judgmental, self-righteous, critical, and dishonest. I had been so looking, busy looking at others, I never saw those things. And because I'm the problem, I can do something about it. And so I will put a link um, to this podcast episode with this poem in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 347, because I think I would suggest, we don't tell you what to do in program, but I would suggest that everybody who's in Al-Anon recovery or any kind of recovery or just anyone would probably get something from listening to that short episode. So that was just this morning as as I was preparing for this episode. Let's see. Thanksgiving was weird this year. It was about acceptance and then doing what we could rather than what we wanted. Because of the pandemic, we weren't traveling. We very often traveled to my parents' house uh, and have Thanksgiving with them. We We did not do that. We were not able to have one of our children with us because they would have had to travel from New Hampshire where they're living now. And it just didn't seem like a good idea for either them or us. And about a week before 
we were having a, a text conversation with our daughter who was going to be coming for Thanksgiving. It was even less than a week before. And, and my wife mentioned that she had a sponsee over and they had lunch together unmasked because you can't eat lunch with a mask on. And that our cleaning person was not wearing a mask around the house. And our daughter, rightly, I think, and definitely right for her because she has anxieties, said, wow, I'm not sure I feel comfortable eating dinner with you when you might have been exposed in these situations. And I was like, no, we can't do that. We have to, we've made all these plans. We have to do it. And I stepped back and let them work it out. And one thing was we asked our cleaning person if she would wear a mask. And she said, oh, absolutely. No problem. And she said she gets tested every Monday and she would happily wear a mask while she's doing her house. But we still had was like less than 14 days from this, either of these potential exposures. And so what we ended up doing was having Thanksgiving dinner sitting out on the deck. That was the, the thing we could do that calmed uh, our daughter's anxieties about the situation and let us eat together. And she brought a friend and we sat out on our deck and it was about 50 degrees and not raining. And I have a deck heater, which sort of gives you the illusion of warmth. You can feel some warmth coming from the heater onto your exposed skin, but I'm not sure it actually warms the air at all because there was a wind. But we were we bundled up and, and we had Thanksgiving dinner and we had conversation and it was as good as it could be in the situation. And it was a lot better than it could have been, I think, if we didn't do something to find a solution that worked for everybody. I had the joy, the privilege of giving a lead on step 12 at a meeting in California earlier this week. Yeah, I had to stay up a little late because it was at 7.30 their time, which is 10.30 my time. And it, by the time I you know, got done with the meeting after the meeting, it was about midnight. But it was such a joy. And the gratitude at being asked to do something like that was wonderful. Apparently, I said some things that spoke to people because as they shared after I did the lead, I could hear that. So that was pretty cool. Again, COVID means we don't have our in-person meetings. The in-person meetings that I normally went to still are not meeting in person. I'm not sure there are very many that are meeting in person right now in, in my area. Almost all of them are on Zoom or canceled. But it gives us an opportunity. And I, I've said before about that early morning, what's it called, the early bird meeting that you told me about? Yeah, every morning, 7.30. Every morning at 7.30. If I am awake at 7.30, which as the winter is bearing down on us, I'm less often awake enough at 7.30 to actually go to a meeting. But it was such a joy during the warmer weather. I could be out walking and be in a meeting. And I don't have to worry about what day it is. I know it's always there. And that's that's something that the pandemic has given rather than taken is the ability to do that sort of thing. So that's just a couple places where recovery is working in my life. How about you? Yeah, so I've been jotting notes in a little journal since we last spoke about the potential doing this episode. Uh, no particular order. I just put some quotes I'd heard in the rooms. She is the kryptonite to my serenity, I heard. <laughs> and what I wrote in the margin, I'm no longer Superman, so kryptonite is just a rock. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm not Superman Kryptonite, but it's a rock. And then someone shared this old story, which is really cool. There were two people sitting and are looking at a dog that's sitting really awkwardly on a plank. And someone says, why isn't that dog moving? It looks so uncomfortable. And somebody else's response was, he's not uncomfortable enough yet. I don't know. That yeah. sounds like, you know, when we're ready, we, we move. I heard this old one I love. It's just funny. I'm invited to a party next week. I've already had a bedtime. The learning to, this was on 1110. I wrote, somebody said, learning to be serene in the discomfort of disagreement. Never heard that before. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. This, I, I think, was from somebody that's probably dual program, I'm guessing, that said, if you don't think you can stop, don't start. If you don't think you can put down, don't pick up. Pretty good. Life is hard by the yard, but a cinch by the inch. Never heard that before. And then I don't know why this came up. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. I, I was yeah, funny. yeah, yeah. One step at a time, day at a time is what that topic was. Yeah. And then I wrote down a really nice quote I loved. It's from Courage to Change. Uh, November 11th, the, the quote at the bottom of the page from As We Understood. Though no one can go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start from now and make a brand new end. Yes. I love it. Let's see. Yeah, I wouldn't have done what I did if you hadn't done what you did. Yeah, that's first. the blaming. <laughs> yeah. The blaming. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody said, oh, in the 730 meeting, talking about going to Thanksgiving and how, how much anxiety there was driving to someone's house with the pandemic and also, obviously, people around a table that sometimes can typically and, and often be difficult to sit through a long meal with family members, if, particularly if they're not in recovery. He said, you can always park in the street. That great? That's a great suggestion. You can always park in the street. You can get in the car and leave, in other words, yes. and detach with your in your car if you have to and then the last thing i really loved lee led a meeting 7 30 last sunday morning and she said a version of the serenity prayer i don't know if she made it up she heard it somewhere i call it the gratitude version of the serenity prayer or the thank you version of the prayer yeah. and what she said was no one have heard this god thank you for the serenity to accept the things i cannot change thank you for the courage to change the things i can and thank you for the wisdom to know the difference. How about that? Oh. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That reminds me of the thing that I've heard from, from some AAs about get up in the morning and ask God to keep you sober for another day. And before you go to bed at night, say thank you for doing that. And mm -hmm. bookend the day with please and thank you. Wonderful. There's a quote at one of the bottom of the pages of Curve to Change. It says, if our only prayer today is thank you. That would suffice. Pretty good. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We also have a couple shares from Alina, one about triggers and one about not God. Hi, my name's Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 92, the topic was triggers. I guess before I even heard the word, I didn't really feel that, I don't know, I didn't really think of that. That was what it was called for me. I know that I have gone to a lot of other 12-step program meetings and heard that word and in support of my qualifier going to his meetings, I would go. And actually it's a good experience. I felt for myself, the exposure and just realizing what it takes for them to, you know, have their program. It's just quite interesting and, and remarkable. But as far as triggers 
for me, I know there are certain things that bother me and I try to be mindful of that. And I try to pause before I react to something. I have triggers every day, basically, whether it be from my husband or work or things that cause me to act a certain way or maybe isolate or hold back from being who I am or being positive. I'll just kind of just be quiet. That's my main thing is when something triggers me, I'm very quiet. I'm not not a very loud person. Like when I'm angry, I'm not one to like cuss or blow up or shout at people. And I just get very quiet and reserved and don't really say too much. I know I'm reading some of the questions in the overview. What triggers have you recognized in my, in yourself? And how do you react to these triggers? And has the program helped you to reduce or eliminate your triggers? Um, and also asks about taking an inventory and finding acceptance and making amends and trusting in uh, my higher power. All these are really good. Some of the things that I realize is, I was just talking today to a friend that when my qualifier relapses, I go through these phases where I support him and I'll do things and try to like keep my boundaries and do for myself. But then I feel like some things don't get recognized. And I know that he struggles with being there for me sometimes. I'm not even talking about when he's using or anything, because I know that's not possible, but I'm just talking about when he's clean and sober. It's really hard for him to, and I have to realize that I can't take his inventory. And maybe a lot of times I have to remind myself, he is loving me and being there for me the best that he knows how. And the way I feel I need to be there for other people and the way I need to feel like I need to love other people is that's my business. And so I just have to accept it for what it is. And if he feels that he's there for me and maybe I don't see it quite the same, then all I can do is voice what I need sometimes. And if I don't get it, then I shouldn't be disappointed because I can't set myself up for or have expectations and set myself up for disappointment. I really like this topic. It's really all coming at a good time. I'm trying to share and catch up because I listen to these podcasts and then don't get a moment to share. But today I've tried to do a few. Anyways, I really, I think I'm doing okay as far as the quarantine. I don't really think that as far as triggers go in that category, I don't think anything's really bothering me with that. Even if people agree with wearing masks or not wearing masks, that's their business. All I can do is take care of myself and they can have their opinion just like I have mine. I tend to keep mine to myself. Some people voice their opinions, which is fine, but at least I have a program. I have tools to help me just listen with an open heart and take what I want and leave the rest. So anyways, I hope you guys have a good day and stay safe. Thank you. I just wanted to share on episode 93 um, entitled Not God. I really like this topic. I work in the medical field and there's always that when we see clients and stuff, they want miracles to happen. And I understand that and I pray for that too. But sometimes there's a lot of pressure people put on you being in the medical field. And sometimes things go well and sometimes things don't and they're not in our hands and it's not for us to decide. All we can do is the best we can with the tools we have and the knowledge we have and skills. And even then, sometimes the outcome isn't so great. But as far as applying this to Al-Anon and things around me, as far as my qualifiers and work and family, 
but there's only so much I can control and that's myself. And I have no, no desire really to want to be God or anything like that. I'm grateful that I do have a higher power that's there for me and can, that I can turn to. And it just relieves a lot of pressure that I feel when I can turn things over to him. And I know sometimes I have to do it multiple times, especially when I'm stressing about or worrying or have anxiety, but it's just a comfort to know that he's there for me and that I don't have to be alone and I don't have to fix everything. And it's not really for me to decide. I know that one of my sayings that I always reflect on is I can't, he can, I'll let him. So I always, whenever things get troubling and I get really emotional about something, I always go to that. Recently with the COVID-19 and quarantine and stuff like that, and wearing masks and having that whole issue you wonder about God's intentions, or at least I do, and what's going on. And I think it really, you know, for me, I've learned a lot through this quarantine. I realized that with Al-Anon in this program that I'm not really stressed about it. Like when we shut things down and we had to stay home and granted, I was an essential worker and I took that on and I don't know, I just felt really, not that I wasn't worried, but as a concern, it's scary knowing that people are out there that aren't making it or things that are happening. You see the news and I try not to watch too much of it, but I do try to keep informed about things. But I just am grateful that I do have this program and that I do have a God that's going to take care of everything's going to be okay. And things may not go the way I want them to, but I guess I always get what I need. And I just have to trust and have faith. I'm not in control of things. And I know that people get upset and I'm trying to uh, acknowledge people's fears and, and things like that. I know my husband was having a hard time and we, not that we didn't agree on what needed to be done as far as being careful and not going out and washing and being safe. His was a little more extreme. And I think He acted out a little bit from time to time, but I know that my sponsor reminded me that some people have fear and that's how they cope. And I just looked at it as that and I got over it and I didn't take anything personal that he had to say. It's his decision, how he wants to view things and his opinions and how he handles things. But I don't know. That's all I wanted to really share. And I hope everyone's uh, staying safe out there. So thank you. So thanks, Alina, for that. Looking forward, I'm not sure what I'm doing next. Several people have written and said, hey, I'd like to do an episode, so we'll see what comes up. But Esther, who we did the slow recovery episode together, has suggested three topics. She's on a roll. Where is there dignity unless there is honesty? Today's reminder, encouraged to change June 23. That could be an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. Doing service slash being of service. Always good to talk about service. And what or who qualifies me to be in Al-Anon? She said, inspired by the listener who wrote in with this question about the word qualifier. And we'll be doing those at some point coming up. It's a little tricky scheduling with Esther because she's 16 hours ahead of me. We do it like my morning, her evening, my evening, her afternoon, whatever. Was it um, Australia? Yeah, Australia. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll get those going. We have lots of topic suggestions, and what I really like is if there's a topic that you would like to contribute to, 
let me know and we can schedule a time to talk about it and make an episode. But even if you have shorter contributions, we welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation here, leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And how can people do that, Eric? You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic. If I'm not the problem, there is no solution or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. And our website, as you have probably figured out, is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode. Those notes will include links to the books that we read from, the blog posts that we discussed, and so on, videos for the music that we chose. And you will also find there links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. We'll take a little break before looking at your feedback. The second musical selection, again, available on the website at therecovery.show slash 347, is I'm the Problem by Timothy Brindle. I think he's uh, what you call a Christian rock singer. So there's some Christian language in this, but the words just so speak to our topic today. Instead of making excuses and blaming when you sin, face it, the truth is, say, I'm the problem. The hook here, my biggest problems, not thinking I'm the biggest problem. We do this thing so often, the heart of the matter is my heart is the matter. God's image in me is marred and it's shattered my biggest problems, not thinking I'm the biggest problem. Yeah. Very, very good. Hi, Spencer. The show, It's Not Your Fault, was exactly what I needed this evening. Just this morning, I told a friend that I still feel that I must have done something terrible in this life that I am not aware of, or in a past life to have the difficulties I have had in this life, two adult children with addiction, one in prison. The pain and shame are pouring down this week. Thank you for reminding me that I did not cause it. I can't control it, and I cannot cure it. This time of COVID has me in my own relapse, self-pity and despair setting in. Despite 13 years of consecutive Al-Anon work, the fewer meetings and the isolation is pulling me down. I am so grateful for your show. Thank you, Maureen P. Thanks, Maureen, for writing. I totally get it about meetings not being the same, so maybe there are fewer. Might encourage you to, to seek out some other meetings that maybe you've never been to before, because I've found, uh, I don't know where you are in the world. I don't know if 7.30 in the morning Eastern time is doable for you, but that's that's a great meeting and it's always there every day. Like I said earlier, if you write to me, I can send you the appropriate link for that meeting. Do you know if that's on the like Connecticut Al-Anon website or anything, Eric? I believe it is. I believe it is. So you might be able to find it there as well. CTAllenon.org. Yeah. We got a voicemail about that episode from Heather. Heather and I were talking about it's not your fault. Whenever my mother was upset, whenever we had a scuffle or an argument growing up, it was always my fault. It didn't matter how wrong she was in the eyes of my father. 
it was my fault. As the oldest child, whenever my sister and I would get into an argument or a scuffle, of course, I was a massive 17 months more mature, so it was my fault. And I got into an abusive relationship with my husband, who is now no longer my husband. We are divorced and raising kids together, but for 17 years, it was my fault. I thought GD was my first name and Heather was my last, and it was my fault. Uh, we were broke and running on pennies because he wanted to play golf or tie boots or whatever, and I was maintaining the finances and trying to sweep blood from the turn up. Whenever that happened, it was always my fault. Then we finally divorced, which took me five years to reconcile because I just didn't want to, quote, fail, because if I left him, then of course it would be my fault. And then I found myself in a relationship after my divorce with another who probably took me, well, not probably, but it definitely took me somewhere around seven years to really realize that I can't fix it. I reached to rehab during our relationship. There were um, times when, you know, I would find him hallucinating, passed out, had seizures, all the while, my fault. It's my fault he won't stop drinking. It's my fault I can't keep him honest. It's my fault he can't hold up a job. If I did more, if I was better, if I was stronger, then, of course, he would be better, too. And so one day, about a, about a year ago, he left, and it wasn't my fault. I had done some program work. And I had started to realize the last time that he went into treatment that it wasn't my fault. And he left this mantra, and I don't know where it came from exactly, but this mantra entered my head, and it simply said, be patient, give space. Be patient, give space. Be patient, give space. Day in and day out. Be patient, give space. Now, of course, at first I thought that it was because I was patient enough and gave enough space. And he would come back and all would be okay. Boy, was I wrong. Be patient and give space, turns out, was for me to go in my God. And when I did that, I no longer felt like I needed to save or fix or make this person my problem. And I was able to let go. It was a very tough time. My son ended up in treatment for suicidal ideation and um, had to deal with that. I struggled in my job because I was madly in love with this qualifier of mine. Um, we had got an engagement ring just before all of this happened. But it can happen when somebody spirals out of control. The ring triggered one thing, which triggered something else. And the downward spiral happened. And... Uh, on life's terms, right? Now it's a year later. Um, me and my children, we're, we're all happy, healthy, and well. And I love, love your podcast. Thank you so much for doing what you do. It matters. And I listen every morning after I drop off my kids. And when I leave work, I have a 30-minute commute between my kids' school and my office. And so I usually get in an episode a day. Um, hearing the wisdom from others is absolutely wonderful. Um, I, like many, had a local meeting here that's no longer meeting because of COVID. However, it's a very small meeting, sometimes only two or three people, and it wasn't particularly comfortable for me. I'm much better in slightly larger groups, at least until I'm comfortable.
but I did do quite a few online meetings back then, and, and, and I haven't in a while, to be honest. But I need to get back to it. i got to pause here. I'll come back. So it's a couple of days later, but I'm back, and I don't have a lot to add. I re-listened my own voice recording. I don't have a lot to add except, dang it, girl, get yourself back into meetings. And I still also feel like I want to mention that I am in a new relationship, going really well. Um, shiny new stuff has pretty much all worn off at this point, and you're starting to see those cracks and imperfections in this new man that has chosen me and whom I have chosen. I'm cautiously optimistic that it will be different this time, not because I think he's better than anyone else or anything like that, but because I'm different and not as focused on obsessing over his behavior, what he's doing, where he's going, who he's with, who he's talking to, what he's had to drink or not, what he's eating, how he's spending his free time, what's he really doing at work, is he making a good living, not my problem. So I can just kind of focus on me, and lately that has given me a great sense of peace. I have two teenage children, and same with them. They're outside of the realm of my capacity to be able to make decisions for them. So here I go letting go again. I'm just letting them make their decisions. What extracurriculars they do or clubs they join or whether or not they do their homework is largely out of my hands at this point. I love E as they will. I will always be there as a support and a reference and probably cattle prod a little. But ultimately, their lives are in their own hands and everybody's lives are in their own hands. And if people want to come to me and be with me and live life with me and be a part of my inner circle, then awesome. You'll, you know, join my tribe. Let's do this together. And if not, cool. Do your own thing. Rock on. I just really appreciate the support and the uh, podcast, and thank you for helping us all maintain a sense of sanity during this unusual time in life for everyone. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And you know what? That feels to me like such a bridge between Oof. those two episodes. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Heather, for calling. And I, it sounds like she was on a train or something at the beginning. <laughs> you referenced uh, another one that you and I did. I'm looking at it. June 6, 2020, Patience and Tolerance, 333, episode 333. Patience and Tolerance, all right. Yep. Now, let's hear your voices with your feedback on the show. Gina wrote with some topic ideas. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for all this work, time, commitment, and service. It is greatly felt. I'd like to suggest some topics for you and your future co-hosts. I read a Daily Reader, September 8th, I think, mentioning alcoholic dementia, and it mentioned live and let live. The Daily Reader also mentioned how it seemed the health services weren't understanding alcoholism, was involved with the mental health problem. This hits home for me and remains a huge source of resentment, lack of trust, and fear. At one point, my loved one was in the hospital, and I felt like I was the only person considering that alcohol was connected or that they should be treated with alcohol withdrawal of mind. This was a huge practice in let go and let God. I'd love to hear an episode more about alcoholism with mental illness, depression, anxiety, bipolar, dementia, etc., and how to navigate the two. They are clearly so connected Yet it seems the healthcare system is broken and it is hard to find help that understands all these intersecting factors. 
I wonder, too, if it would be interesting to have a roundtable episode with people who work in hospitals, mental health, as doctors, therapists, etc., who then also came to Al-Anon or AA and what that experience was like for them. I heard Cecily mention that yelling can be a form of domestic violence. I think it is from episode 41, Vulnerability, but don't quote me. In my experience, irritable and unreasonable can escalate quickly to yelling, especially during these tense times of COVID when we are all quarantined together. I'd appreciate an episode topic on what this type of domestic violence looks like in more subtle forms. The yelling, tension, blowing up, and then pretending like everything is fine later. I feel this inconsistent behavior has fostered my hypervigilance and people-pleasing. I feel traumatized by family members yelling. I know I have picked up some of these controlling behaviors and tension as well. I have to look at my side of the street. Even if I am not raising my voice like they did to me, I think my intensity and aggression may be doing the exact same thing. I'm trying to be honest with myself that maybe tensely hammering down my point is just one step away from yelling. I feel I am doing it because it has to be understood or they won't hear me unless I am speaking that way. But I know that is distorted thinking. Perhaps it is because I feel criticized or defensive. I always have choices. Hopefully in time, I can release these new character defenses with new Al-Anon tools. Next, a newcomer just asked me after their first meeting, this all sounds great, but what is the program? It got me thinking about how confusing it can be at first. I answered as best I could and, of course, suggested your podcast. Episode 195, What is Al-Anon? And I would love if there was a playlist tab on the website with a list of episodes good for newcomers, as well as a new episode dedicated to newcomers. Maybe questions like, what did you hear as a newcomer? What do you say to newcomers? What helped you as a newcomer? What should newcomers know? More questions like that. I know they are probably already done, but I'd love more people's perspectives on, would you rather be right or happy? Forgiveness, detachment, boundaries, shame, and unhealthy guilt. Finally, Here's an Al-Anon UK podcast I came across. www.alanonuk.org.uk slash podcasts. Okay, I'll put that link in um, the show notes at therecovery.show slash 347. Thank you for all, Spencer. Kind regards, Gina. Carolyn also wrote with some topic ideas. It's that time. Spencer, hope you are well. Thank you for this program. Would you please consider doing another episode on the four M's, managing, manipulating, martyrdom, and mothering? I think it's such a valuable topic, I could use another. I heard, helpfulness is the sunny side of control, and unsolicited advice is criticism at a parent Zoom conference today, and it is thought-provoking. Maybe those phrases could be a good show topic, too. I definitely need more experience, strength, and hope from other parents of an alcoholic with mental health and depression problems. I really appreciated your last episode with the barb tape, and at the end, the reminder to take a walk, masked and distanced, of course. I took a long walk for the first time in weeks after listening to it, and it really did help my mood lift. I know I could have heard that reminder anywhere, but I guess I wasn't ready to hear it until you said it, so you are on my gratitude list. Feedback on the activism episode. It was great to listen and think about since there's been so much unrest in the U.S. right now. I still feel pretty overwhelmed wanting to help make things better for myself and other people. I worry that if I detach, that is me turning a blind eye to what is going on. It is the same fear and anxiety I feel for my kids, like I'm watching them 
or this country go down the wrong path. I got a lot out of your episode, but I still need to hear people's thoughts on Angela Davis's quote and how it aligns with Al-Anon. I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. Because I'm still not clear on what I can do, how I can help in a healthy way. How can I do my part to fix the dysfunction of my home and the dysfunction of my society while also having serenity about what I cannot change? Sigh. I will keep coming back. Keep well. Caroline in Texas. Allison sent us a voicemail. Hi, I'm Allison from California, and I was calling in response to Amanda's question at the end of episode 339. She asked if anyone had been pregnant and stayed with their alcoholic partner. My situation wasn't exactly the same. I'd love to share my experience in the hopes it might help someone else. I am married to my alcoholic partner, who was sober when we met and began his active struggle again when our child was just over a year old. I struggled a lot in that next year and a half over how to protect my son and draw boundaries and eventually learned a few important things, which I am constantly relearning. First, the absolute best thing I can do for my small child is to be active and engaged in my own recovery, regardless of what's going on with my husband. Second, I cannot give alcoholism the power in my home. I made a lot of rules in the beginning, like big ultimatums attached with things that ended up making me more anxious about my husband's recovery. I had ended up given, giving the disease the power in our marriage to determine whether we would stay married and things like that. Finally, I realized that the best way to support or help my husband was to step back and let him have his dignity. In the beginning, I used our child to punish him by saying things like, you you know, can't watch our child, you can't be alone with him, or by taking him out of parenting decisions, and that didn't help anyone. It made me into a martyr, and it made my husband feel horrible. I don't know what the future holds in my marriage, but I can say without a doubt that Al-Anon has made a happy, healthy home that's built on respect and love possible for me. Thanks so much. Hope that helps. Hi, I'm Allison from California, and I was calling in response to Amanda's question at the end of episode 339. She asked if anyone had been pregnant and stayed with their alcoholic partner. My situation wasn't exactly the same. I'd love to share my experience in the hopes it might help someone else. I am married to my alcoholic partner, who was sober when we met and began his active struggle again when our child was just over a year old. I struggled a lot in that next year and a half over how to protect my son and draw boundaries and eventually learned a few important things, which I am constantly relearning. First, the absolute best thing I can do for my small child is to be active and engaged in my own recovery, regardless of what's going on with my husband. Second, I cannot give alcoholism the power in my home. I made a lot of rules in the beginning, like big ultimatums attached with things that ended up making me more anxious about my husband's recovery. I had ended up given, giving the disease the power in our marriage to determine whether we would stay married and things like that. Finally, I realized that the best way to support or help my husband was to step back and let him have his dignity. In the beginning, I used our child to punish him by saying things like, you you know, can't watch our child, you can't be alone with him, or by taking him out of parenting decisions, and that didn't help anyone. It made me into a martyr, and it made my husband feel horrible. I don't know what the future holds in my marriage, but I can say without a doubt that Al-Anon has made a happy, healthy home that's built on respect and love possible for me. Thanks so much. Hope that helps. Thank you, Allison, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Maybe that will give 
a little bit of support and hope to somebody listening. Amber expressed some gratitude. I just wanted to express how grateful I am for all your hard work and this podcast. I'm new to Al-Anon and have been doing a lot of online meetings. There are no face-to-face meetings open in my area due to the pandemic. I listen to your podcast every morning and evening driving to and from work. It has helped me more than I can ever express. I've not listened in any sort of order. I pick randomly depending on what is going on in my life and in my ever-working brain. Listening to you and your co-hosts makes me realize that I am not alone and I am not crazy. Now, if I start to spiral, my husband, qualifier, will ask me if I've listened to one that day. Even he can see the difference that it has on my mood. Listening has made a huge difference in my life and allows me to start and end my day on a positive note. I cannot explain how much of a difference it makes for me. It allows me to slow down my thinking, stop overthinking, take a breath, and approach life in a better mindset. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you for that, Amber. I never expect to hear that sort of thing back. And I am always just amazed to hear how what we do here makes a difference. Thank you. Linda left a comment on the show, Acronyms and Alliterations, which was number 284 at therecovery.show slash 284. I just found this podcast and really love it. Liked the episode on slogans. I always like sayings and slogans, so I was really drawn to that when I found Alanon. Pause is great. A different one I've heard for fear is false evidence appearing real. A disease of perception, for sure. Thank you for doing this and for sharing your recovery. And Caroline writes, Hello, Spencer. Thank you for the recent activism episode. I got a lot out of it and think it was very important. I heard someone talking about their experience with overeating and food as someone in Al-Anon and how those two things are connected. It rings true for me, not to be dramatic, but I feel addicted to sugar, and I definitely overeat when I'm feeling emotional, overwhelmed, tired, anything really. Could there be an episode on food and how it relates to recovery? Any tips on how to manage it? Any experience, strength, and hope from people who specifically worked on their food in recovery or found their relationship with food change simply by being in recovery? Thanks to you, and keep well, Caroline. Caroline, I'll just say about food, what I know is that the work that I have done in recovery has made it possible for me to be aware sometimes how I use food to deal with my emotions. I guess awareness in steps four then leads to steps six and seven where I can ask my higher power, my program for help. That's all I have right now on that. If you're out there and you're listening and you have had food issues and if you have used your recovery tools to help you to live with those food issues, to deal with those food issues, maybe you can call, write, voicemail, email, whatever, and and share that with us. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for being here today. And I'm glad we got this one in the can, as it were. (laughs) The third musical selection, I had picked a different song for this when I was recording with Eric. And then the next morning, when I was attending my Zoom church service, 
I heard this song performed and I was like, that song is just perfect for this episode of If I Am Not the Problem, There Is No Solution. The song is The Man in the Mirror as performed by Michael Jackson. And just a little bit of the lyrics here. I think this is the chorus. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you, one day at a time.